Katrin Kelp-Stebbins. Welcome. Um, I'm so excited to have you on Professor Latinx videocast. Yeah, I'm just excited to have you here, hear about your, um, your work that you've been doing and your new work. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Frederick. I'm really excited to be you know, spending this strange, strange time with you doing this. Yeah, it takes a uh, COVID-19 virus to get us, you know, like face-to-face -face somehow, right? Um, gosh, anyway, that sounds really like not so good. But anyway, okay, let's talk comics. Um, yeah, uh, Catherine, how did you like find your way to comics and was it one of those kind of origin stories? I love comics, and then I would just had to figure out a way to turn it into kind of a professional career. Yeah, tell us, share with us. I think it's actually a pretty, um, a pretty standard origin story, but skewed by the fact that I was a girl. So I read comics a lot as a kid. I was an avid, lifelong comics reader. Um, but comics changed a lot in the 30 years between when I started reading them and when I became a comic studies professor. So when I was a kid, I lived within a 10 mile radius of five different comic book stores, which is something some of your viewers might not even know exist anymore. Um, but those were things that <laughs> used to be all over, especially in the East Bay where I lived. And I would go into these stores and just be avidly reading all the time. But I think certainly by the time I was in my teens, I had a clear sense that I wasn't necessarily, that these books I was reading weren't necessarily written for me, especially things like um, a lot of Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld, and that's not to call them out, but certainly when Image Comics was a really big thing, I was reading all of them and and I didn't know if it was really for me or not. And then similarly, I'm in these spaces and I have one of those primal scenes where I'm there and I'm reading something like underneath the stacks and I look up and at once in unison, like 10 grown men kind of like lowered their heads. And I had this sense that people weren't necessarily welcoming me into that space or that there was something strange about me being there. And so then when I much later became an academic, one of the questions that's always driven my work is power and also culture and senses of belonging and being in place or being displaced. And so I was really lucky to be able to put that together with that kind of lifelong love of comics but not always feeling like I was in place in comics. And by the time I was in grad school, comic books or graphic novels were being sold in bookstores, which is another thing that might not exist anymore. But so my experience then of going into bookstores and purchasing these books was really different from my experience as a child being in comic book stores. And that got me to really thinking about how it is on a much greater scale that people are welcomed by or oriented towards those sort of cultural objects 
that make them feel as if they are, you know, in a space of belonging and if they are a part of that culture. So I think that's, again, my origin story. It has a lot to do with being a woman and a feminist theorist, but it also has to do with really loving a thing, even if it didn't always love me back. And I think really wanting to be a part of this, you know, amazing cultural production, no matter where it took me. Yeah, and now you're in a kind of hot spot, if I can use that sort of term right now, uh, for comic studies, right? That there at the University of Oregon, uh, Eugene. Um, so exciting it for you. There's a there is something in your work that your academic scholarly work, and I'm sure in your classroom spaces that we'll talk about in a second, but that there's an, a real strong impulse to kind of understand a system of like comics, right? That comics aren't just US, that there's something kind of bigger about them. Can you talk about that and maybe talk about your, your new uh, book um, a little bit and how that's informing your new book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, I'm trained as a comparatist and uh, a comparatist who also comes out of a long background of post-colonial theory, uh, which is currently changing and now undergoing its own sort of renegotiations. But one of the questions that we ask always in comparative study, but also in post-colonial study is, you know, who gets to feel at home and where and why and who gets to produce culture and evaluate culture and where and why and what are the systems and the structures that are in place that either create what we might call you know a, a worldwide culture of comics or that impede that kind of progression and so i think that the sort of work that I'm most interested in is that work that really, you know, takes a kind of deep dive, a kind of Foucauldian archaeology to look at how did a certain structure come into place, right? How did world comics come into place? Is it the same as world literature? If so, why? And if not, why not? And why are these kinds of connections between different cultural sites of production um, either being made or why are they being impeded? And I think if we think about how certain systems of power build borders or allow for the free exchange of ideas, um, then we wanna also ask how do comics become international? and what are the certain circuits that they make and what are circuits that they can't make? And why is it that, you know, when I was in graduate school, I would see these lists of like 10 comics you must read right now. And this list would always have Art Spiegelman's Mouse. It would always have, you know, something by Joe Sacco. Mm -hmm. And then it would have like Marjan Satrapi. And it was never acknowledged or even made note of that Marjan Satrapi is writing in a different language than these other writers, but she's on that list. And so what does that list tell us and what doesn't it tell us, right? These are the sorts of questions that world systems, I think, compel us to really ask. And you know, how does a Marjan Satrapi book get to me? 
what are the sorts of changes or permutations it goes through? And what does it mean to be calling it a graphic novel if it's actually something from a completely different cultural tradition? Yeah. And why, you know, what does it actually behoove people to say, you know, I like Marjan Satrapi's work here in the US? And so I think for me, those questions of what sorts of structures of power, cultural valuation, distribution, and you know, capital, what are those structures that are being made around the world and how do they interact with each other? And so I think also, I really love that you always use planetary to think about comics because it's this great you know, Gayatri Spivak term I think I'm also really interested in comics in terms of the global, mm -hmm. which is a really negative term. It's very negatively valenced in post-colonial theory, especially by people like Edouard Glissant, um, Jean-Luc Nancy. But it describes something that's also impossible, which I think coming from comics really excites me because there is no real possibility for a globally commensurate system. But mm -hmm. it's in some ways also more honest because it's about the fact that money underlies these cultural productions that we I think in the humanities often like to think of as you know just being art and I think that thinking through those connections between money art and power for me that's really that's where the most exciting sort of questions are really being asked and so that's a lot of my current work is thinking about how books are translated and why, how they're selected for publication and why, and then what books aren't selected for publication and aren't translated. What are these sort of aporias in the global that can never quite be worked through that we don't necessarily know or acknowledge? And how can we do that deep work of kind of um, counter memory, right? Of thinking through how we got to the view of world comics that we have and what other views we've obscured in the process. Catherine, what's the title or at least the working title of your book? So it's gone through a lot of changes. Um, right now it's called How Comics Travel. Mm. Um, and I like that title because that is really what I'm interested in is comics and the transnational. But it originally was called graphic positioning systems because it also has to do with those earlier questions I brought up in terms of orientation and how we, we use comics and how comics use us to make space and make place throughout the world. Mm, well, this is a nice sort of segue to my next question. What, is, what do you mean by comics as orientation devices? Yeah, so I mean, this is a really deep question and it's hard to kind of get into in a very short space of time. But I think that all of my work has been driven by really brilliant people who luckily came before me like Edward Said, and one of the things that Said always, always reminds us of is that culture takes place, right? It, it has a real land component that mm -hmm. we can't ignore. But at the same time, what Said says is that you can't 
there's a difference between a place and feeling in place or at home. And that difference for him is culture. So how do we find our way to be in place, right, through culture? And how do cultural products orient us to places so that we either feel in place or out of place? And a lot of other theorists have taken this up and come up with really brilliant responses. And Sarah Ahmed, in her work, Queer Phenomenology, uses um, Edmund Husserl's theory to really think through how we physically, emotionally, mentally orient ourselves. And then how do we also disorient ourselves or become disoriented? So I think, again, on a personal note, that first time I realized that people were looking at me like I didn't, like I was out of place in a comic book store. I think that was a really important, you know, way in which I was becoming oriented to certain spaces and cultural products. But I also think that when we think about how comics travel the world, there are certain comics that reaffirm unacknowledged sorts of traditions and forms of being in place and cultural practices that we don't even know because we just read them and we appreciate them and they make us feel, again, like we're in place, like we're at home. And there are other comics that I think do something else and that actually help us to break out of those traditions and those cultural systems that we often take for granted. So when I'm thinking about comics as orientation devices, I'm thinking about what it is that makes a comic that's written in my first language that opens so that the recto and verso sides are left and right respectively, that reads from left to right, that has images that I can navigate in a way that I'm accustomed to. Like, what is it that makes that an orientation device for me? And then what are ways that I could also either read my comics or have comics that force me or compel me to recognize my own reading practices in ways that aren't necessarily obvious to me all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a really great piece by Rusty Wittick called The Arrow in the Grid, which is all about how even these things that we take for granted, like reading from left to right, um, these weren't always, these aren't innate practices and they weren't innate in comics. And if you look at earlier comics, like right now in one of my classes, I'm teaching Little Nemo in Slumberland, and you have all these wonderful markers, like these numbers that occur throughout the panels that are training a reader in the you know, early 1900s, 1910s, how to follow this story. And that means that this wasn't something that was actually always there. It's not an always already. It's actually a cultural technique that readers are being trained to actually learn to do as they're reading and then forget about. And I think that we reach a point in comic studies where we often have forgotten about what it was that trained us to read that way. 
And so when I'm thinking about comics as orientation devices, I'm thinking also about ways that comics can remind us of what we've forgotten that now seems innate or seems completely unmarked in our reading practices and how doing so can also remind us of reading practices that aren't being honored and that aren't being celebrated and of comics and traditions that get you know somehow othered in our more kind of celebratory canonical work. Yeah, that's so powerful that uh, your concept there, um, especially right with um, so-called post-colonial um, sort of creators and their comics and the kind of notion that, well, there's a purposeful disorienting that disallows total appropriation of, right? For the outsider to come in and think they can own the culture through the comic and yet there's this kind of purposeful disorienting yeah, I love that. Wow, what a generative concept. Um, what about, uh, you know, this is also kind of really nice segue to some of your other work. Um, and the politics of page layout, you were kind of getting to that a little bit with our arrows and um, the kind of recto verso. Um, maybe through reading, I don't know, Bechtel or Red um, uh, as an example, what, what do you mean by that? So when we're thinking about page layout, again, one of the things that I want us to always be aware of or that I always try to compel myself to be aware of is that a page is not merely a representation of space or multiple representations of space. It's also a space of, of representation. And what that means to me is that it is its own sort of spatial system. And like, there are a lot of really great German media theorists who are doing this with maps, but like a map, there are things that we often take for granted, right? Once we become indoctrinated into reading these spaces, we no longer notice how they're orienting us or changing our reading practices. So I like to instead remind us of how a page is a space, and then also of how a page either makes place or interacts with place. And there's a really great moment in Thierry Gromsten's The System of Comics, where he talks about how the space, the espace of a page becomes a lieu or a place. And it becomes a place, he says, because it, it's invested with meaning, it's invested with attention, it gets worked and reworked. And so in thinking through that concept, I wanted to think about how these artists are using the space of the page to question, or in the case of Red, really deconstruct our concepts of place. And so um, for Michael Nicol Yakulanis, who's a Haida artist, he does work that is all done through the Haida formline, what he calls the frame line. So his panels are in no way uh, orthogonal. They don't follow a grid. They're instead these really beautiful, connected, curvilinear compositions. And as he says in another short Haida manga of his, The Wave, this 
The page, he says, is a wave. It is in the process of having been a tree and becoming something else. And I will direct it with my ink through my brush in certain ways, but I can't control it, which I just think is this really beautiful way of conceptualizing literally and figuratively the comics page as this kind of wave or this place that is always in the process of being somewhere and something else. So what Yakulana says is that rather than using panels, which we see in most traditional comics, he uses the frame line to challenge the panel because the panel really comports with kind of allotment thinking or this settler colonial way of dividing space. Whereas the frame line is about connectivity. It is about the fact that all space is filled. There is no empty space. There is no terra nullius. All space is filled with something. And it's, you know, a question of, for his words, expansion and contraction between different, you know, places, peoples, encounters, different ways of being in the world. And that rather than reading the space as these little divided areas that have clear borders and clear boundaries and that reflect this colonial thinking, he's really using the space of the page to instead reflect a different way of thinking entirely, a way of understanding space and place that is not broken up and is not, you know, somehow based on empty versus full, but rather based on these, you know, these waves of interaction and community. And for me, that's a really powerful, you know, renegotiation of the comics page. And it, it makes me aware of things that I take for granted, even in my own comics theory that I really appreciate. Like I love a lot of comics theorists who talk about page layout and um, mise-en-page, but I think that I also, I imagine the space in a certain way that someone like Yakulana's actually disorients me to and makes me think like, am I imagining this right? Maybe I, I need to rethink how I've thought about the space of the page. Yeah, that's a like really beautiful way of articulating, you know, what is kind of this, even saying decolonial seems to kind of, I, I don't even want to put that word next to red. It just, it, but I love the way you kind of uh, figured this as a kind of push against a kind of page layout that mirrors or mimics the convention of kind of occupation and settle, settler culture um, and ideology. Um, Gosh, uh, I, I want to take one of your classes, Catherine, um, for sure. Like, sign me up. Um, tell me, like, what's a trademark of yours? Like, what do you do in the classroom? I, I imagine, like, it's just so, like, the kids must just be so captivated. I mean, I, it's, I don't even know what to say. It is the greatest privilege of my life to get to teach comics, um, and it, it's so wonderful working with my students. One of the first things that we do on the first day is that I have students take our syllabus and make it 
translate it into comics form. And I really, I like this as a kind of opening activity. They have to work together with each other. It's kind of chaotic and amazing and bizarre what they do, but it's beautiful for the fact that here's this document, right? That is actually almost a legal document in certain ways and that students are used to and they almost take it for granted that like I will receive this and it will tell me what to do. And I think instead having them make it into comics allows them to both like turn that on its head and create their own sense of ownership and creation, right? I'm taking this thing, now it's mine and I'm gonna make it something completely different and use a lot of weird um, manga like conventions and emojis and stuff. And, and then at the same time, for me, this is almost, you know, a metonym for what I'm hoping comics do in the classroom, which is take structures of power and certain hegemonic practices that become, you know, common sense in Gramsci's words, and actually flip them on their heads and say like, well, why, you know, is this telling you what to do? And why are we structuring the classroom in this sort of oppressive way? And what are the ways that instead we can create a new way of being together and a new way of interacting with each other that is responsive to one another and that's also like community-based. So I really do, I love comics for that fact. And also just because my students know a lot more than I do about a lot of things, especially when it comes to artistic practice. I have students who are making comics um, that I could never in my wildest dreams be making. And so it's really wonderful to engage them. Yeah, it must be uh, wonderful to be in a education, a, a kind of academic space where you have a critical mass of colleagues who are teaching practice and theory of comics, um, kind of knowing that you're going to get a certain number of students who you can kind of, you know, hand the baton, run it, and take them somewhere else, right? Yeah, I mean, our students are incredible in that, you know, we have graduates working at Marvel um, and at Milkfed Criminals and various other comics production companies. Um, we have students here who produce their own comics journal um, campus-wide. It's called Art Deco. Go pick it up at the UO. Um, and they're really, really just fantastic. I will say, though, that even, you know, working for four years before I came to University of Oregon at a school that was an HSI that was generally serving mostly um, first-generation college students or students who didn't necessarily feel like they belonged in college, that even teaching comics there, which we had a comics course there called Comics as Literature, um, that was really amazing as well, just because you had students who would not take an English class unless they needed to, so they needed to. And they would come into the class and feel like they were not in any way experts and could never be experts. They didn't feel comfortable reading, you know, traditional literature. And you give them comics and they're like, well, I can read this. And I, not only can I read this, I can at times understand it and understand things about it. 
that people in the class who are, you know, really comfortable in English classes are kind of sometimes baffled. And so I feel like comics can do a lot from an intersectional standpoint, both or in terms of, you know, class, race, and gender, in welcoming people and in challenging the sort of traditional precepts that often structure academic engagement. And they really do help to break down those kinds of borders and boundaries that we've set in terms of what counts as knowledge, what counts as culture, and who gets to be the master, you know, the correct reader of those things. So I really, like, I even, no matter what I was doing, I would be trying to use comics in my teaching practice. Oh, thank you for that, yeah. Um, Oh my goodness, Catherine, thank you for joining me for this video cast. Um, clearly comics, world comics, planetary comics um, matter for all the reasons that you've just kind of beautifully laid out for us. Thank you, Catherine. Of course, thank you so much for having me and for doing this. <laughs>